Welcome back to the second episode of Depolarizing America, a podcast discussing the best ways to combat polarization in American society. Each episode, we will deliver the in-depth research discovered by our science and legal teams in Science Court. I am your host, Matt Simonson, and I am joined by Hannah Yehekernier and Jess Jersik. In this episode, we will be discussing the public health and psychological effects of polarization and service programs in the United States. I am here with Philip, a member of the science team studying effects on polarization of service programs on public health. Philip, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and what you're researching in Science Court? Hi, I'm Philip Dowdell. I'm a freshman here at the University of Minnesota, and I'm working on researching the health domain of our topic. So my main focuses are on how polarization in general affects public health and then how our potential solutions, both pro and con, would affect public health. So before we get into service programs fighting polarization, what are the health effects of political polarization on the public? There's kind of a wide variety from violent political movements, perhaps being the most dangerous one. But even more than that, like I remember finding some research about vaccine usage often decreased in like fairly highly Republican areas. Polarization can also lead to distrust of health information from the media. There's many ways that political polarization can harm public health. And are there ways to combat these health issues caused by polarization? Have we found solutions to this yet in your research? Just logically, it would be saying reducing polarization would then reduce these negative health effects. Outside of polarization, rather focusing on these service programs, I don't know if you've looked at maybe inside or outside the U.S., but what are the effects of these service programs on public health? In my research, I've been looking at various volunteer programs, some military service, and volunteering in general is associated with better mental and physical health. That's pretty highly substantiated, although it's somewhat interesting that there's not like necessarily a causal link there, basically because like you're more likely to volunteer if you're healthy. I have one specific study that showed volunteers were more likely to exhibit certain personality traits. So it's hard to say specifically exactly how adding volunteering will affect someone's health. And if we were maybe switch that to a mandatory service, how the pro argument is looking at it, is there any difference in the health effects or have you noticed any in your research? Kind of the relation to that, to what I just said earlier about how volunteering, it's hard to find a causal link. Part of the reason for that is volunteering is a generally is a non-mandatory process. So it's hard to make experiments for that. Like you can't randomly assign people to make them volunteer or else it's not really volunteering. But there would also be, I remember one of the possible services that people would be participating in is like the Red Cross. So even just having more people working as part of that would benefit public health. I guess it kind of depends totally on what types of programs people are volunteering or or even through mandatory service have to do. So have you found different effects based on the different types of programs that people are participating in, both mental and physical health? The correlation with volunteering with better 
health, which includes um, better self-rated mental health, lower depression, lower resting heart rate. There's a wide variety of physical and mental health benefits associated with volunteering. It, it, It seems to me that there would be some programs that would significantly benefit participants' health more than others. Yeah, I've done research into people doing military service, and there's a wide range of results there that I've found. Like, there's some things that I've seen that show little effect on people's health as a result of military service, some showing that military service associated with a higher likelihood of suicidal ideation and mental distress but only for those in a specific age group that would likely be older than the people in our service. Do you think for these uh, positive health effects and negative health effects, would they be amplified if mandatory services were to become adopted in the U.S.? I had a specific study specifically regarding military service, noting like a national military service would likely not include deployment for many people. And there are negative mental health effects associated with military service and deployment is not a large factor in those effects. So the more people you would have in military service, the more people that would be negatively affected in that way. But of course, there are also positive effects from the more volunteering activities. Okay, that's that's pretty interesting, actually. Have you noticed in your research, are there any pre-existing health conditions or requirements, I should say, that need to be met in order to serve in these service programs? I mean, of course, especially for the military, but nearly any job, there are some sorts of minimum health requirements that vary pretty widely. I think you're researching other factors on people's ability to serve and one including that would be age, for example. So have you seen maybe in other countries or other programs, other minimum age requirements, maximum age requirements? Yeah, and I think that would be most relevant with a mandatory national service because that would likely be put into policy based on age. There's not any specific data that I've found showing what the best age to have a national service. And I believe our psychology and sociology experts are kind of honing down on when the best state of time would be for participants to participate in mandatory service. And the pro argument, because they're focusing on mandatory, they're really honing down on when to do this mandatory service. And it looks like they're doing it more maybe late high school to early college time period and maybe even taking a gap year, which is what they've discussed. That generally seems to be pretty common and makes sense just like, I mean, practically as well as there do seem to be like some positive things that I've seen like associated with gap years and kind of various activities there. If the con argument of voluntary programs were to emerge victorious, do you think the health factors and health requirements would be different than mandatory services or would they be pretty much the same? Because mandatory service, you're being forced to. So at like some point in your life, it might be a little less restrictive since it's almost a requirement in your lifetime, but voluntary is less restrictive. So maybe they would require a bigger set of um, health I mean, factors. In either case, there'd be like fairly wide variety of programs with a fairly wide variety of health requirements. And I don't think those requirements 
would be or really should be based on whether people are made to join something or are choosing to join something they would and should be based on what the health requirements are or need to be to do whatever the service is both of our legal teams really they want to present a plan to the jury and the pro team if they're really looking at a mandatory service they need to focus in on when they want to do that and the gap year is something that they discuss and that would be very useful for their side of the argument. Another question I had was how has polarization affected the public health in the United States during the pandemic? That did seem particularly relevant. There's data that political affiliation did affect people's response and their health activities like mask wearing, hand washings, and especially this was noted in the study partially as a response to the type of media people were watching. So I do think media is one thing that's contributing to political polarization currently. So political polarization has been affecting people's responses to COVID-19 often in a negative way. So if we can reduce it, it would seem that that would be able to get better. With reduced political polarization, there'd likely be more trust in our government and governmental health organizations, which would have likely caused better outcomes in regards to the pandemic. And we could see that all throughout the media. It was it was kind of evident. One of my last questions here is, are there any other significant findings from your research that you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe we haven't talked about or discussed yet? One thing that's interesting especially about health. It's never like the explicit focus of this topic, but like it's it's just, it's very connected. When we're looking at these like very policy-based arguments, we're always just looking at write this policy and implement it, but we're not really looking at the overall health of the people that are going to be under these programs and their mental and physical health is some of the most important to to keep them sane, I should say. So uh, yes, I think it's a very good point to make. We're just trying to look at every possible angle we can and making sure that it's the right way to do it, but also at the same time having the health of the public and these participants that are participating in these programs to be at the forefront of our focus. Well, thank you, Philip, for your time today and discussing the effects of polarization and service programs on public health. It was very interesting to hear all the research you had found. Enjoying the show so far? We are currently recruiting a jury where you can help to decide this case at trial on April 24th. Visit our website at scicourt.umn.edu to apply. Well, thank you, Mannix, for sitting and chatting with us about psychology. I'm actually finding that psychology plays a really huge role in everything we're thinking about for our case and tackling polarization. Honestly, it's becoming more prevalent in everything. The more and more we discuss every week, it's like, oh, we go back to psychology. The first question I have for you is, what are the effects of political and racial polarization on human psychology? Well, we're looking at a couple aspects of polarization, including political and racial polarization. And in America, we're divided into two major party groups, and the parties are very divided inside and outside of the sphere of politics. Democrats and Republicans, both in government and in ideology, 
think that the other group is narrow-minded and unwilling to participate in rational discourse. And outside of the political sphere, we see that members of both parties prefer speaking with and interacting with members of their own party. And they'll even prefer them, as was demonstrated in one study, that uh, they prefer to give them opportunities like college scholarships. And this is also seen along racial lines. Members of one race will prefer to give opportunities to uh, members of the same race. How does that, you know, the factor that we have political and racial polarization, how does that play into examples in our lives? I know you talked about how people pick people either from the same party or um, things like that, especially for political polarization. But like, what are the more long term effects of this type of polarization on our psychology? Well, it's a positive feedback loop. So the more we prefer to interact with members of our own uh, group, political or racial or otherwise, the less connected we are with members of the other group. And that creates even more polarization. And we can also see this in the example of misinformation. Polarization is a symptom of misinformation, but it's also a causal factor. So when people have misconceptions about outgroup members, they'll tend to move away from them, which causes polarization. And then polarization in turn leads to the generation and the distribution of additional misinformation. Are there ways to combat these psychological effects? We've studied a few different approaches to combating polarization. The first is reducing misperceptions about uh, outgroups. However, this isn't the most effective and reducing misperceptions and generating knowledge about outgroups on its own isn't especially effective. The next approach is a shift in identity. So the more you think about a common identity, the less likely you are to focus on your identity as a Democrat or a Republican, or a white person, or a black person, if you think of yourself as an American first. So people who are primed to think of themselves as an American are less likely to contribute to polarization. And lastly, we've looked at contact as a method of combating polarization. So fostering intergroup relationships, and especially where members of different groups are working towards a common goal, is one of the widely studied methods of reducing polarization and reducing prejudice. And so what we're focusing on with our case this year is using those latter two methods in creating indirectly a common American identity through a common experience that involves contact with outgroups. So what are the effects of a mandatory service program like the military on psychology? The military isn't currently mandated, but those who join often feel like they need to. And the military is a really great naturalistic way of looking at contact theory and of looking at the effects of creating a common identity, because often you get people from all around the country coming together and working on a specific goal, and they often create a a common identity within their group that doesn't allow them to think about their differences. And so we believe that that's one of the reasons that desegregation in the military was so successful. We're still looking into the science of that, however, uh, but we think that it looks promising. That's very interesting. Do you see the same effects with like volunteer service programs? 
Yeah, volunteer service programs have been empirically shown to improve tolerance and cross-group understanding between the volunteers, and it's often between the volunteers and the underserved communities that they are uh, working for. So if these programs were to become mandatory, and I know it's not mandated that people obviously join the military, um, but if these programs were to become mandatory, how do you think that could affect polarization in the United States? That remains to be one of the big questions that we're looking at is does mandatory making something mandatory reduce its efficacy in combating polarization and prejudice? And we haven't found a clear answer on that. Well, we found some unclear distinctions between mandatory and volunteer service. Uh, Some studies indicate that mandating it makes it less likely for people to enjoy it or be more inclined to participate in a similar activity in the future. And we have other studies that say that mandating something that someone might not previously be inclined to do, like volunteerism, actually increases their likelihood to participate in it again in the future. So it's really unclear at this point. And that's one of the main questions that we're still trying to answer. That's very interesting. What other questions are you still curious about? Yeah, one of the things that the legal team is still trying to work on is nailing down how they're going to design their programs and especially in the volunteer program, how they incentivize members to join and participate. And so one of the things that I'm researching is how incentives affect intrinsic reasons to participate in service. And so we see that extrinsic motivations or instrumental motivations like status, money, getting a good job in the future tend to undermine intrinsic motivations to participate in service. And one example of this is at West Point, cadets who joined the military for instrumental reasons, meaning something that isn't internal to becoming a cadet, they were less likely to become commissioned. They were more likely to exit the military early and they were less likely to be considered for promotion. Also have negative behavioral impacts. It also leads to a decrease in quality of outcomes for service members when your motives are instrumental and not intrinsic. So really what you're hinting at is you really have to believe in the cause or the mission in order really for these programs to really be effective. So my next question is how important is it for groups to be heterogeneous? Heterogeneity has been shown to have significant benefits uh, in problem solving and for groups. There have been studies that show that heterogeneity in personality leads to stronger solutions and racial heterogeneity leads to improved thoroughness and accuracy in uh, jury deliberation. So uh, we see that heterogeneity has significant benefits across the board. Wow, that is that's very interesting. Given all your research and what you found so far, what do you think our legal team, what do you think they should be considering related to the domain of psychology? I think they should be considering how to implement contact theory in the most effective manner and ensure that they're using all four conditions of Alport's hypothesis, which have been shown to improve the effects of contact in intergroup situations. Can you tell us a bit more about that, at least for people who may not know? The four conditions are equal status among all members of the groups, a common goal that they're working towards, facilitated cooperation 
and support from authority. So there needs to be an authority or an institution that is facilitating all of these conditions so that they can be as effective as possible. What other significant findings have you found in your research thus far? One thing that I think is important to understand is that simply knowing more about people who are different than you does not reduce prejudice. So you need to actually become involved with that group. You need to make sacrifices. And it's been shown that it's best to make contact with the group and work towards a common goal. Okay, I'm going to ask you a follow up to that because I feel like that's such an important point you just made. How then should the legal team think about that when they're either designing a mandatory program or volunteer service program? Like what should they be thinking about? Well, I think it's really important for them to ensure that no matter whether their program is mandatory or voluntary, they need to be bringing people together who are different, who wouldn't normally interact with each other. Are there particular skills that these groups of people need to be doing in order to tackle this polarization? Well, contact theory has been utilized as a tool and they've used a lot of different skills and methods of implementing contact. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mannix, for sitting down and talking with us about the effects of political and racial polarization on our psychology. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope this was helpful. Thanks for joining us this week on Depolarizing America. Make sure to visit our website, scicourt.umn.edu, to stay updated on the latest research. Catch up with our weekly blog posts, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SciCourt. We hope to see you next time as we further discuss how to depolarize the United States.